So I am an oldest sibling, and I am super thankful to be so uh, for many reasons. Usually because oldest siblings are the most attractive, the most intelligent, all those kinds of things, right? <laughs> that is one of the reasons why I'm thankful. Uh, but I'm also thankful to be an oldest sibling because um, I hear that when you are not, sometimes you have to live with the reality that is your oldest sibling, Right? Some of you maybe have had this experience, I did not, where you go into school and all of the teachers and all of the principals and the faculty staff, all the people have a thought about who you are based on the actions of your older sibling, right? And so this can be good, this can be bad. You can walk in the door and they go, you better behave. And you're like, I haven't done anything yet. They're like, yeah, I know what blood's in your veins, right? Or you can walk in and it's like, oh, I am so excited for you to come in here and excel and be the best student in the school. And you're like, um, my brain is not quite the same as my, my older siblings, right? There's all the different expectations that can weigh on you uh, as people look at your family and the family you come from and you're sort of expected to live up to the reputation that your family has. I can only imagine that it is worse if you are the child or the sibling of someone famous, right? Um, I just thought of this now. The non-football Manning brother. What's his name? Oh, yeah. Oh, you don't even know his name, right? Peyton and Eli have a middle brother who had an injury, couldn't play football. I think he's an accountant. None of us know who he is, right? Uh, we had this with basketball players. Michael Jordan's son is shockingly not that great at basketball. I mean, he was a college player, but that was it. The Shaquille O'Neal's son right now is getting ready to play. And you can imagine the expectations when your dad is the big Aristotle of like, what are you going to manage to do with your career? The coach is like, your dad was better than that, right? I mean, they're just all this stuff. Because our families of origin can kind of shape how people perceive us. Uh, this was true in the ancient world, too. Um, ancient Jewish people, particularly in the first century, were really worked up about genealogies and where you came from and what, sort of what your stock was, so to speak. Who was your parents? Who were your grandparents? Uh, there was a high level of Jewish messianic expectation in the first century that the Messiah was going to come and the Messiah must be a son of David. And so everybody wanted to do, you know, their Ancestry.com 23andMe thing, right, to make sure that they could prove that if they happened to get into messianic position, that they had the birth certificate to prove that they deserved to be the Messiah. And so, and this, this is still true today because of the interesting relationship between ethnicity and religion that you have within Judaism, there is a strong interest in where do you come from? What does your family background look like? Um, what, uh, what, who can you trace back your lineage through? And so it's not surprising that when we open the book of Matthew, Matthew gives us to his Jewish audience, Matthew writes largely, we think, to Jewish people, a genealogy of Jesus. And the genealogy is fascinating in what it includes, particularly a couple of asides that break the pattern, right? Most of the genealogy of Jesus is that boring part that you read when you're starting to do the New Testament in a year, and you're like, oh man, is this what it's going to be like the whole time? Because it's just name I can't pronounce, begat, name I can't pronounce, and name I can't pronounce, begat, name I can't pronounce, right? And you just do that for 40 verses or something. And you're like, what is going on? 
Um, but I have some selections here. I want you to notice something that Matthew does that's really interesting. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then a few verses later, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. A few verses later, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. A little further down, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And then further down, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So this is interesting. Um, These things are not usually too concerned with women, and yet Matthew sprinkles in, at seemingly random times, women, right? Now notice who is not here. He could have said, um, Abraham, whose wife was Sarah, or uh, Jacob, whose mother was Rachel, or mother was Rebecca, excuse me, got my R's mixed up, mother was Rebecca, right? Ra- Rachel, Rebecca, Sarah, Leah, all these famous uh, matriarchs, none of them are there. None of their names are included. But are, what are included are these five. Um, maybe you're a Hebrew Bible expert, maybe you're not. I want to quickly go through who these five women are. Uh, the first one, oh, sorry, Preston, go ahead, give me the first one. First one is Tamar. I don't know if you guys remember the story of Tamar. Tamar is married um, to one of the grandsons of Jacob, right? And he dies, and he, she's not had any children. And so they go through this process that they had in the Hebrew Bible, where if your brother died before he gave his wife children, as the next brother up, Another reason to want to be the oldest. As the next brother up, your job is that you're supposed to have children with this woman, right? And those children will kind of count as your brothers, and those children will take care of the wife. In a strongly patriarchal society, this sounds weird, but this is, uh, this is a very merciful thing that's done so women are not left um, to be poor and destitute in a society that doesn't have a lot of jobs for women, right? It's a system in place to make sure that the family takes care of the in-laws, so to speak. Well, Tamar's problem is her husband dies, and then the next guy down the line refuses to do his job. Um, It's kind of gross. You can read the scripture, but he just won't have kids with her for for various reasons. And it kind of goes on and on like this, and Tamar is desperate. She has not got any children. She has no sort of way to secure her financial future or her connection to the family. And so what does Tamar do? Tamar dresses up like a prostitute. She waits until her father-in-law is strolling down the road and she seduces her father-in-law and gets pregnant by him. And this is a pretty easy way to make sure, easy, this is a way, right, that you can make sure that you stay in the family line. And there's this whole embarrassing thing where she comes and she goes, I'm pregnant with your baby. And he goes, no, it isn't. She's like, here's the stuff you left over at my house. And he goes, oh, wow, that's not what I should have done, right? It's this terrible, embarrassing, weird story in the history of God's people where one of Jacob's sons just makes, uh, I don't know if he really makes, the, the mistake is not caring for as she should. And the Bible is interestingly mute on the morality of what she does because she's just trying desperately to take care of her well-being. Rahab is the next woman that's mentioned. Rahab is famously um, known by most of us as a prostitute. Uh, Maybe we think now, more correctly, she might have been the owner of a brothel. 
Um, you know, a little bit, <laughs> six and one, one half dozen of the other, right? Still generally the same profession. And she is famous for lying to the Canaanites and hiding Israelite spies in her home. She says, I know that you're going to conquer us. And so in Jericho, she hides spies and becomes the one Canaanite woman and family that is saved in the destruction of Jericho. It is worth noting she is a Canaanite. She is not an Israelite. She is not a Jew. She's not one of the promised people. She's a foreigner. Which is similar to the next woman on our list, Ruth. Now, Ruth is when we go, oh, she's a fine, upstanding young woman. And it is a lovely name. But let's not totally forget Ruth's story. Again, Ruth is a foreigner. She's a Moabitess. She uh, loses her husband, comes with her mother-in-law back to the land of Israel. And to get a husband, she has this interesting scenario where she goes to a man in the middle of the night when he's had a little bit too much to drink, takes off some of his clothes, and ends up getting married to him the next morning. Right? We tend to try to sanitize that for church a little bit, but that's the sketch of the story of what goes down and how Ruth meets her husband, Boaz. And so there's a little bit of scandal in the book of Ruth. The real tasty morsel, the Bible says she uncovered his feet, which sounds kind of weird. She took his shoes off in the middle of the night. Um, Just so you know, foot sometimes is a a euphemism for another part of male anatomy, sometimes in the Hebrew Bible. So not exactly the most upstanding story. You don't want your daughters acting like Ruth. That's what I'm saying. You do not want them dating uh, Ruth style. And then finally, we have Bathsheba, the obvious victim out of this list. Uh, Bathsheba has a terrible experience where she's bathing on the roof. David sees her. He wants to be with her. He calls her up to his palace. Um, There's a lot of debate, and I think even less debate nowadays. She's either seduced by him or raped by him. Or does it because he's the king and she sees no other option, um, which in a Me Too environment is about the same as rape, right? This woman ends up being pregnant by David, and then David murders her husband to try to um, cover up the situation. And of course, we all know this is the great moral failure of David's kingship. And then we get to Mary. Now, it is worth noting that there are five women in this genealogy and Mary's the fifth. And if you have not quite figured out what Matthew's doing, he's going to make it really explicit in the next few verses. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her Uh, Again, Matthew makes explicit in this story what should be obvious, right? Uh, Again, this is another story we kind of sanitize as if Mary would have become pregnant by the Holy Spirit and she would have gone to the village and goes, I have a Holy Spirit baby. And everyone would have gone, oh yeah, that's great. I love it when you get a Holy Spirit baby, right? But that's clearly not the way it goes down. Matthew tells us that Joseph walks in this situation. He goes, I don't know who baby that is, but it's not mine. And he's a good man. He doesn't want to make a big deal about it. He doesn't want to lynch her in the public square. In a world where we take everybody and put them to the rack on social media, Joseph is an incredible example to us of like, I've been wronged, but there's no reason to give her public disgrace. Let's just take care of this quietly on the side, right? But clearly he feels that he has been wronged. He believes that Mary has been with somebody and that's why she's pregnant. And that stink would have been 
around Mary. Uh, I think it's very obvious what Matthew has done here. He has named five women in the life of Jesus who all dealt with some kind of scandal or weirdness or sexual impropriety or something. Sometimes as the victim, sometimes as the one who started it. But nonetheless, these are all people who you probably don't bring to the front of your genealogy. Again, he could have said, the, the, uh, the son of Sarah who called her husband Lord and did what God pleased, right? You know, like there's all these other things that she could have brought out and that other authors bring out. But he brings out the ones that have the scandal and the tawdry details that would have made the you know, cover of the you know, National Enquirer Jerusalem edition, right? <laughs> and it's really interesting that he does this. I want you imagine for a minute that you're about to meet your potential in-laws for the first time, right? You're dating somebody and you're going to go to a family reunion. And then I want you to imagine how you would try to introduce these people um, to your spouse-to-be, right? You want, the, or you want your spouse to think they're marrying into a nice family, right? And so you usually do the good things. Imagine walking into such a room and... Uh, you get a description like this. Oh, hi, honey. Uh, here, meet my cousin. Uh, his dad is also his mom's father-in-law. Don't ask, right? Or, oh, this is my brothel-owning grandmother. Or Aunt Ruth and Uncle Boaz met. Um, she snuck into his office while he was working overnight and was a little bit drunk, and they got married the next morning, so, you know, whatever. Or, hey, there's Grandpa David. He married Grandma Bathsheba after he killed her husband and had an affair with her. Oh, that's Aunt Mary. She got pregnant before the wedding, but don't worry, it was the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, just imagine being introduced to people this way. There is no hiding it, though, for Matthew, because Matthew wants us to tell something really important. He's going to tell us that Jesus is a really surprising Savior. Throughout the book of Matthew, he is continue, he's going to do this really weird thing. Matthew has this incredible tension that I find really fascinating. Matthew will prove to you that this is the Jewish Messiah based on the Hebrew scriptures. And he will also say, but in none of the ways you actually expected. So in the genealogy, he ticks off all the boxes. Abraham, David, um, you know, Boaz, like all these good characters, right? And he goes, but let's not forget the more salacious part of those stories. <coughs> it's as if he says, yes, the Messiah is these things you're expecting, but the Messiah also comes from a messy background. The Messiah is also the child of people who made mistakes, people that did bad things, people who got themselves into spots that you don't want your kids to get themselves into. And none of that stopped him from being God's anointed servant to changing the world. Um, I think this is really important because we really can be guilty about looking at things and judging them by their appearance, right? We teach kids really early, don't judge a book by its cover. My kids still do that. I mean, the one that reads does this. She looks at a book and she's like, oh, this doesn't look good. And I'm like, it's, it's blue, you know? Like, what could you possibly know by the cover of this book? But if we're honest with ourselves, we do this a lot. We look at how someone is dressed, where they come from, what their family is like, 
how much money they have, the mistakes they've made. And we immediately go, oh, okay. And it's really what Matthew is trying to tell us is you can't do that. Because a Rahab might look rough on the outside, but she is the great, 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 great grandmother of the son of God. Right? That God can use anybody and any family to do his work. That you don't have to look at how much money someone makes or what degrees they have to see if they're valuable or worthwhile. And the thing that's really ironic about this, I think part of the reason that Matthew brings this up is his own history, right? If we remember, Matthew is a tax collector. He's the kind of guy that when Jesus is picking out disciples, even the smelly fishermen and the terrorists that he's put onto his uh, discipleship group go, not him, right? Like, I, slitting people's throat in the middle of the night is okay, Simon the Zealot. But a guy who collects taxes, we cannot put up with that, right? And yet Jesus reaches out his hand to Matthew and he says, I want you to be part of my family. Matthew knows what it's like to have people look at you as not worthy and not okay and not trustworthy and gross or whatever. And to have Jesus look at you and go, you know what? You still can be part of God's story. And so I don't think it's any mistake that he starts with the scandal. He goes, if you're going to clutch your pearls about people who are sinful and have messed up in life, you're not going to like my Messiah. Because he comes from that kind of stock. Right? The Jerry Springer Show people are his grandparents. And that's okay. Because God still is doing amazing things through Jesus. Uh, this is the start of a study that we're going to do. Uh, it's going to be long. If you don't like long sermon studies, sorry. We are going to go through the book of Matthew. Um, I kinda, we try to do a rotation and we try to do a gospel every fall. We've never done Matthew because Matthew is 28 chapters long and it's a little hard to do 28 chapters in the fall. So we're starting now. And between now and Christmas, we're just going to do a certain, literally, we're going to do a sermon every week from the book of Matthew. And what we're going to find is that Matthew gives us an upside down kingdom, a place that is exactly what you expect and not at all what you expect at the same time. <clears throat> A place where it is the son of David, but also the, also the son of Bathsheba, right? That he is part of the long lineage of Joshua and the conquerors, but he's also part of the lineage of the foreigner Rahab. And this, this whole chapter just sets up this idea of you are going to surprise, be surprised, you are going to be shocked. Because when God does amazing things, he does it in upside down, weird, uncomfortable ways. I want you to think for just a minute about where Jesus' life starts and how powerful God's work is. The story of Jesus' life begins with a young couple that is about to break up because one of them thinks they've been cheated on. A heartbroken single mom-to-be who is worried about how she might take care of her child since her uh, fiancé is suspicious of her. That's a really tough situation in an upside down way to start the story of a king and it's exactly the way Matthew starts his story but there's good hope there's hope about what God is going to do um, Joseph gets uh, things get cleared up for Joseph after he had considered this that is the divorce an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said Joseph son of David 
Uh, do you think being a son of David is important in this chapter? We had David a couple times, and now Joseph is identified as a son of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, what's it mean for God to be with us? I think sometimes we think it's a little bit like a royal wedding. I don't know if you guys were into this a couple weeks ago. I was not. Uh, but nonetheless, the whole rest of the world seemed to be interested in a bunch of rich people getting married and, you know, patronizingly patting regular people on the head, right? And this is the scene of a royal wedding. You see all the gawkers and their photos, and they do these parades through the streets. And this is how most kings are with their people. They are safely secured in a carriage with undoubtedly snipers all over the place, right? And security guards and ropes and lines. And they parade in front of their people and they wave for a selfie or two. That is the way that most royals are with the people. Take a minute to think about what Matthew means when he says, God with us. Born to a poor family in the middle of nowhere with all this stuff going on. Jesus embraces the mess of our real lives. Jesus is with us in the muck and the mire and the grossness and the mistakes and the guilt. All the stuff that we have that make us feel unworthy Jesus plops himself right in the middle of it and goes, hey, I'm here with you. And you're like, oh, but you don't know what I've done. He's like, hey, have you seen my lineage recently? Have you seen my family tree? Have you seen the mistakes they made? I know what it's like to grow up with people thinking you're an illegitimate child. I can deal with your mess. And so he doesn't come like this kind of royal. He comes like the baby in the manger. And in so doing, he enters the mess of our life. And he redeems it and he makes it beautiful. And he says, you do not have to have a perfect pedigree. You do not have to have a perfect family. You don't have to be set up for everything to work right. You can come from the biggest mess in the world and you can still help turn change because God's kingdom is upside down and unexpected to what you think it might be. All right. Um, if you're new with us, we do a, a question and answer period at the end of all of our sermons. And this is so you guys can talk back to us and ask questions. So are there any questions you have about Matthew 1, about today's sermon, about the application? Anything that you'd like to know more about, we'd love to talk about for a few minutes. Yeah. So why, why are we so obsessed with cleaning up the mess before God, so to speak? Um, this is kind of a lame answer. I just think that's the way we're wired. Uh, I, go back to, I go back to the story in the garden, right? As soon as Adam and Eve realize they're sinful, the first thing they do is they make clothes, okay? Now, this is fascinating because at this point, everybody has seen you, right? Like you're, you're not sparing the cheetahs or whatever. They have seen you running around naked. Your spouse has seen you naked. And God, he made your parts, okay? So it's not like he's going to be surprised. And yet, when Adam and Eve sin for the first time, the first thing they do is they cover up, right? And uh, so some people have talked about the natural human inclination is to make suits of fig leaves, right? 
It's silly. It doesn't make any sense. It's not real. Everybody knows it's fake, but we still feel better with it. And the same way it's ridiculous to hide your nakedness from God as if he doesn't know what it is by throwing on, you know, a hula skirt made out of, you know, fig trees or whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, <laughs> I think that was, a, that was a deep cut from several years ago. But yeah, the idea of like just trying to make these clothes, it's ridiculous. It's obviously patently ridiculous. And it's also the first thing that every human being does when they're caught in their sin. It's why when famous people are caught in a scandal, the first thing they do is they're like, oh, I didn't do that until there's videotape. And they go, okay, well, I did do it, but, right? Because, you know, that's just the people we are. It's just the way our brains work. Yeah, and we should, I, I want to say real quick, I, I do think that we, hardwired for guilt and shame is something that's true from experience, and that's the way people are. Uh, I, I want to say that I don't think we're created to be that way. No. I think it's part of what Paul talks about as the flesh, or the sinful nature, so translated NIV. It's this thing that post-garden we have. It's one of the ways, just like people have now diseases or born with you know, medical problems, and that wasn't God's intention. In the same way, I think the shame and guilt thing is the same kind of thing. That we're just something post-sin makes us wired to do that, you know. Uh, it's another reason why, oh, this is really off topic. When we talk about children, though, and the nature of children and, 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 and sinful or not sinful, it's one of the things I find interesting. Uh, I was always, you know, I was brought up in a tradition where, we believe that children were born innocent and pure and spiritually clean, and then they, <laughs> and then and then they, um, and then they kind of reach an age of accountability, right, where they start to be guilty of sin. But I think there is something to be said to the fact that, like, little kid, last night one of our children all of a sudden was in the backyard with no underwear on, and we're like, "What are you doing? This is not okay." But you know, she's still at the age where there's no. There's no sense of shame. And even when they do things wrong, they don't like to be punished. But I don't think they really, it's not like, yes, dad, I know in my heart that that was the wrong thing to do. It's like, oh, I'm being punished and that stinks, right? And then somewhere along the line, it clicks with kids, this idea of like, oh, that's just wrong. Like, I just shouldn't have done that. And I find that to be very interesting. And I think it gives us a insight into the way that humanity develops, that there's a time where we just are blissfully ignorant. And then at some point we realize like, oh man, I really did mess up. Does that make sense? Any other questions?